Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Anthony Wood, the author of Black Montana, Settler Colonialism and the Erosion of Radical Frontier, 1877-1930. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? Great. I wonder if you could start by telling us something about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Of course. Um, Well, I am from Montana. I grew up in the little, well, somewhat little town of Anaconda um, in the western part of the state. Um, I had always really wanted to do history, um, which was kind of a strange thing. I realized now talking with other historians, it's often not the the thing that everyone has in mind for themselves when they're a young child. Uh, But for myself, I always wanted to do something. I wanted to be a professor, I think, and I wanted to be a historian or an archaeologist or something along those lines, even as like a very young child. Um, So my uh, direction, both in high school and then college, had always pointed me towards studying history. I went to Carroll College, which is a small liberal arts uh, school in Helena, Montana, the capital of Montana. Um, I majored in history. And then at the end of my my four years there, uh, in my junior and senior years, I started working through the college um, as like an, uh, a work-study intern, more or less, um, with the Montana Historical Society and specifically in their state historic preservation office, uh, which was, uh, you know, in the capital area. And it was in that uh, in that office that I got to meet the wonderful uh, Kate Hampton, who uh, had been working on a project for the the um, the the Shippo office there for some time, almost 10 years at that point on uh, African-American heritage places. Uh, So finding and reporting and working to preserve places across uh, the state uh, that had significance to African-American history um, and to um, local and community history really generally. So uh, that project had been ongoing. And then when I arrived, I was given the opportunity to help with some of the new phases of that, where, and we were looking for uh, buildings that were still standing um, that had been owned and or rented by the black community in, in Montana and specifically in Helena where I was. And we we started with my, my work of mostly just going through the, the censuses uh, from you know the 1870s to the 1930s, uh, collecting and aggregating information on on Black Montanans um, in that era, and then working out through a very a variety of other uh, methods uh, where they lived. You know, identifying actual historic addresses, which you know may or may not correspond to uh, addresses that exist today. Uh, looking at uh, Sanborn insurance maps. Um, finding the houses and determining through various means that don't involve going in and pulling the deeds on every individual house uh, where hundreds of of African-Americans in Helena and then thousands of of members of the historic black community across the state lived. Um, And then to determine whether or not the the buildings that still remain were, uh, you know, um, possible uh, subjects for, for, for preservation efforts in the future. Um, and in that process, I also did, and just, an, I was wonderfully, you know, fortunate to be hired on my, right after um, I graduated college and started working kind of continuingly on, on that project and doing um, just a lot of research uh, and 
writing, you know, short essays and different um, stories about about the black community, really as a public historian, alongside a team of public historians at the Historical Society, um, which was also alongside a, a network of community members, uh, both um, other public historians weren't associated with the historical society, but also members of the, the black communities in, in various towns across the state. Um, and that project came together uh, right about the time that I started my, my graduate school at, um, for my master's degree at Montana State University um, in 2016, 2017. And that, that project became a really large interactive uh, website um, with uh, archives and access to all the census information and uh, large maps that uh, we put together, uh, story maps uh, kind of for different kind of pedagogical angles to, to look at this history, um, oral histories that were both conducted in the 1970s by Dr. Quintard Taylor, but also uh, more recent ones that the Historical Society and the SHPO office conducted. Um, and it's really just an amazing resource. And I was so fortunate to get to be you know, just thrown into it almost, you know, by the, by the whims of the, of the intern program at Carroll College. And uh, once I, once I entered that space and saw the, the incredible rich stories uh, that it had to tell, which um, were sometimes known, but often not kind of known in the sense of they weren't part of the collective and commonly retold uh, public or community uh knowledge about you know any particular town um new angles about telling these stories started to become very appealing to me and thinking about how do i uh if i wanted to continue on this work how could i tell a much more uh, expansive statewide history of, of the black community in montana in ways that is trying to always be directly in conversation with uh white Montanans, myself included, who have grown up with a very strong and often um, elaborate set of, of, of different histories, which form what I kind of think of as our collective identity as Montanans in the state, and then trying to, to work in a way in which the, the, the black history, which I had been encountering and the stories of people, many of which you know, left the state in the early uh, 19, or 1920s and 1930s, uh, some of which whose families have remained, um, how their experiences should impact uh, the ways that, that white Montanans and, and really Montanans of all races and ethnicities can continue to come to a sense of self um, in this place. And when I arrived at a, Montana State, I took a class uh, on the American West from uh, Mark Fiji, who's kind of a well-known environmental historian. And that year he had decided um, to re recast his American West seminar uh, to look specifically through the lens of settler colonialism, which was a new, well, it wasn't new, but it was at least still a fairly hot uh, topic and, and, and a new way to approach uh, the study of the American West at that time. And it's since grown to be incredibly mainstream, which I think is, is, is very good. And it's, you know, terms and lexicon now exist in all kinds of ways across uh, different uh, subfields in American history and in the history of the American West specifically. Um, and it was that, uh, it was that class that really helped me see that the stories and the, the research, which I had been so fortunate to have with me already at the time of my, my master's program, um, had something entirely new to say when 
put alongside uh, the the questions and methods that settler colonial studies had been developing for you know decade or more at that point. Um, and I also quickly realized in the reading that this was a field that had very little. These were fields that had very little intersection. Um, they they didn't seem to speak to one another in the ways which I what I wanted to have. You know, I had questions that I wanted. To be answered, and I thought this these two fields really could say something to one another. And at the time, uh, it, it didn't seem like that those answers had been forthcoming. So I thought that this would be a great way to begin my my graduate studies. And I wrote, wrote my master's thesis, um, the erosion of the racial frontier, uh, based on on these two sets of of uh, intersecting fields and methods and questions. Um, and it was longer than I had anticipated it being at first, but I was lucky enough that I, I had years of research almost at that point going into the master's program. And um, the thesis itself ended up being quite long. And then when I uh, started my doctoral program at the University of Michigan, um, I realized that I had, I had written so much on this particular topic but it was also not a topic that I was going to like continue from the master's to the PhD in, in ways that people often do. Um, and then I was kind of left with the question of, well, how, how, how does this particular, you know, how does this body of writing uh, culminate for, for me? Do I, you know, set it down and leave it until after I'm, I'm done with the, the doctorate and come back to it? And I, I really felt like considering so little had been written about the the black community in Montana, um, and that I was I was really committed to it remaining a state story, considering that the questions that led me to it were also bound up in in questions of of collective memory uh, for Montanans. Um, that I really thought it was prudent to continue pushing on and revising. I added another chapter um, while I was doing my my dissertation uh, preparatory classes at, at Michigan, and just decided to see if any presses had thoughts, um, if any reviewers that they might send it to, you know, had suggestions for me. I was, and I was incredibly fortunate that several presses were interested and that uh, the University of Nebraska Press eventually uh, picked it up and uh, I got a contract with them, which was very surprising to me. And everything after that happened very, very quickly um, while I was still in grad school, um, which I and you know now in my fifth uh, year or sixth, you're going to start my sixth year of of my PhD program, and it's uh, it still seems like it happened very quickly. Uh, but I'm I'm glad for the way it has kind of played out because I think it's offered me um, me a kind of a, a blitz of perspective, which I'm happy to try and learn from. So yeah, you start the book with the story of Annie Gordon mm-hmm. and. Annie being born black, but yet was referred to as being white. Tell us about that story. Yeah, this is a really, I think, the most illustrative um, nugget of of history from Montana. You know, it's written by uh, Annie uh, Gordon. Oh, sorry, no, it's written by Rose Gordon, Annie's daughter, much later in life. uh, Rose Gordon lives in White Sulphur Springs at this point, and she has been writing uh, really uh, prolifically for the local newspaper um, there in Mark County 
for some time. And she has developed this, uh, there's a recent book uh, on her that has argued that she has developed this really unique kind of literary genre uh, through the way she, she writes about her community herself um, and, and members of her community in, in the local paper really consistently for years. So um, these, this is a story about her own birth, which she tells, and it is, I think it's, it's hard to say exactly where it comes from. I, I suspect it is likely from stories that her mother told her about her own birth, um, or it could have been stories that she tells about herself in some other way from other sources. Uh, generally, it begins with her mother has arrived in central Montana at a mining camp uh, in um, and in 1883, I think, or 1884, I'm getting the dates a little off, might be. Um, and she has uh, Rose there in the camp and uh, one of the Crow midwives, uh, Native American women who help deliver Rose, uh, the story goes, at least in some versions, that the, the midwife um, notes that because Rose is the first non-Native child to be born in the camp uh, that she is the first white child, um, even though she is uh, she is an African-American girl. So this story becomes something of a, a framework which I, I, I wanted to use to set up the tension that exists in doing this history of, of, of black history in Montana, but also seeing and viewing Montana's history as the history of, of, of settler colonialism uh, in the Northern Rockies and uh, Upper Great Plains. Uh, yeah, in Upper Great Plains. So the tension that she draws our attention to, which I'd like to begin, uh, I liked beginning the book with, was that she recognizes that her birth in this in this space, you know, on this land is is bound up with immediately her, her position uh, and experience of blackness, but also experience of blackness within a society um, of white settlers uh, on the land that is still in the, in the 1880s in the case of central Montana, very much you know, demographically and uh, socially populated by uh, indigenous people with a lot of, um, a lot of control in, in many aspects of, of daily life and a lot of power that hasn't yet quite um, diminished in the way that it would over the next decade. Um, and her story then, the way she tells it, and it's significant that she tells it, um, sets up a tension uh, and it's in some ways symbolic and metaphorical. She is of course not a white child, um, but the, the tension that emerges is how will uh, this new, um, uh, this this new child who's been born in this space, how will she be regarded uh, in the society of of settlers and indigenous people, uh, given her her um, status as an African American and in many ways an also an equally colonized uh, group of people. So this is where the 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 story kind of begins and it sets up. Uh, it's it's. It's a story that's you know metaphorical and symbolic in nature, but it does help guide, I think, the rest of my my arguments through presenting you know the experience of blackness to the best of our ability through various sources within the lens of of a settler colonial society in Montana. Can you explain the term settler colonialist to the yes. audience? Yeah, so. In general, the, the term settler colonialism, which has become far more prevalent in the United States in scholarship uh, recently, um, mostly uh, refers to a, a 
process and project of, of white settlement. Um, and it is in some ways a racialized term as well um, uh, of colonization of indigenous lands on the North American continent through the settlement uh, of, of white settlers that go to, instead to, uh, instead of in traditional colonialism, such as we might see in you know British uh, India, that would subjugate uh, indigenous peoples and you know uh, exploit labor. Um, in settler colonialism, the object is to replace indigenous people such that the settlers themselves become natives. Um, and this replacement happens either through uh, genocidal uh, uh, projects, violence, uh, massacres, but also through deeply violent you know, uh, processes of assimilation uh, that has played out in, in various uh, historical events and, and, and projects across the North American continent. Um, over the last you know, three, 400 years. And it's an important term to think about, um, in, in especially for a historian, temporally and as something that is, it stretches, I think, across the centuries, but it has, its, its moments are unique. And I've always tried to stress the ways that uh, settler colonialism is a framework, but it is not a transhistorical framework. It, it doesn't, you know, exist outside of history and looks exactly the same at all places and all times. Um, but instead, it is it is always a kind of an anxious uh, ordering of society that recognizes that it is in many cases, though, it does uh, lead to white settlers committing you know, barbarous acts and horrible uh, amounts of, of violence on indigenous people that that project never fully succeeds. And it's always failing as one scholar, you know, writes to, to rest upon its twin goals of native elimination and assimilation. Um, and that anxiety causes a great amount of, I think, latitude in the way that the settler project proceeds. And in my, in my work, I'm very interested to know how the category of settler who can occupy that category in the in contemporary moments, um, you know, can an African American person be a settler? Can they act as a settler? Uh, in what ways do they hold and use the power of the settler state, um, or in what ways are they being used by the, the the powers of the settler state? These are negotiations that I see taking place um, on the ground, and it's it's that it's that tension that I hope my my work can try to begin to not unravel necessarily, but to you know parse out some of the distinctions where I think historians can make important um, important uh, observations for the field of settler colonial studies more generally, which is obviously much more than historical studies. It's it's philosophy and it's critical studies and it's English and literature. Um, so it, I think that historians have a great deal to offer in in parsing out the way that race and power operate within settler societies. Now, one thing I noticed in the book, you brought up the military. Many of the Blacks moved in that area as a result of the military. Explain that experience. Yeah, so this is actually one of the most, um, I don't want to say obvious, but most clear and apparent ways that African-Americans come to Montana directly and closely tied to the project of, of settler expansion um, in, Mon in, in the Northern Rockies and Great Plains specifically. Um, 
in the 1880s, uh, at which point the four all-black uh, regiments of the, of the U.S. Army, the 24th and 25th Infantry and the 9th and 10th Cavalry, had been stationed kind of throughout the West, but mostly, uh, mostly around the Southwest um, in the 1870s, uh, where they had kind of become famous in, in many cases and became public figures. Uh, you know, the Cavalry famously were termed the Buffalo Soldiers. Um, and it kind of became a moniker that was attached to any of the of the four black regiments. And in the 1880s and 1890s, many of the the, the black troops that had been stationed in the South are now uh, stationed at forts that are stringing along uh, the northern uh, section of the of north of the North American West. Many of which the forts are in Montana. Um, so they come and arrive in a state, primarily in a decade which it's seeing uh, kind of prodigious growth. Um, it's seeing uh, a great amount of, of settler migration to the area uh, that Montana becomes a state, had been a territory since 1865 and then becomes a state in 1889, uh, right around the time that many uh, Buffalo soldiers and uh, arrive in, in the region. And they are in charge of all kinds of different tasks at the, at the various forts where they're stationed. Um, sometimes these tasks are both public facing and perhaps um, not particularly interesting, such as like stringing telegraph wires or just doing uh, going out on patrols in, in various spaces. Um, but then some of these are, you know, more widely known. The 25th as the bicycle, uh, in, uh, the bicycle corpse famously made a, a very um, widely known and celebrated ride on bicycles as a as a um, in a way of uh, finding out with whether or not bicycles could replace horses uh, and other uh, expensive, you know, livestock animals as a means of transportation, and they ride from. Montana to, to St. Louis in, in 1896, I believe. So like there are those types of um, actions uh, that also become part of, of the black military life in Montana for, for, for many of the black soldiers. But there's also the the constant um, patrolling of, of Native American reservations that continues the um, the many ways that the, the violence of what had been thought of as the Indian Wars, which were supposed to have ended in 1877 Montana, um, in which now black soldiers are stationed at these forts continually uh, working as as agents of, of the U.S. government in relation to its its uh, kind of suppressing of, of Native Americans and keeping uh indigenous people on the various reservation spaces in Montana. So that's how they, they arrive. It's also the role in which they seem to be, African-Americans, at least in Montana, seem to be most closely connected to the, the settler project. Um, but at the same time, it's also a, a space in which uh, African-Americans assert their own agency. Uh, and we see this most, I think, most clearly between the two uh, Philippines campaigns from you know, 1901, 1903. And then again, the second campaign starts in 1907, when many, all, all four of the, the regiment, black regiments are, are shipped to the Philippines. And when they return, um, many of those companies, especially of the 24th and the 25th, are stationed at Montana forts. Um, Following the Philippines campaign, which is a brutal uh, military excursion, its uh, morality is questioned frequently by black troops. Um, 
It is not pleasant. It's a very difficult climate to, to work in and fight. Um, and not to mention that it's just consistently taking place uh, within a society that does not value African-Americans as equal citizens and black soldiers are made painfully aware of this consistently in their experiences uh, as they move through uh, the United States on their way to and from the Philippines. So when they return, uh, we see a really large exodus of, of black soldiers um, in Montana, many of whom you know, take their opportunity to retire or to muster out at that point. Um, and many, many of these soldiers, instead of returning to where they had enlisted, many of them in the South or back East, uh, many of them choose to remain in Montana. Uh, Helena is a good example of this in which by 1910, through various sources, newspapers, uh, some lists of, of the Buffalo soldiers who were at Fort Harrison, we know that up to a quarter, if not more, of the of the whole Black community uh, was either a Buffalo soldier or directly related to and had family who were a, a former Buffalo soldier at that point. Um, and that's well after many of them had left the military. So we see this, this rise of a, a community which then can look to these individuals and their, their roles as black veterans um, with all the history that that entails in Montana as kind of pillars of the community and as um, almost uh, you know, semi-mythic figures in, in, the, in the historical memory of the black community. So, yeah. Another thing, the reconstruction era and the migration of blacks there, mm-hmm. tell us more. So after when I and I use the uh, Elliot West's kind of conception of greater reconstruction um, that ends in 1877, tying directly to um, uh, the defeat of the, the Nez Perce in the, in the last and what he calls you know the last Indian War, um, as a, a useful point of reference to think about. Um, the end of Reconstruction in the United States more broadly, um, and thinking about the American West's place in that in that era. Um, as Reconstruction ends, famously, uh, what comes to be known as like the Exodus or Migration, which Nell Painter had has written so much about, um, which is now you know classic work, uh, commences to places from the South nearby to uh, the Great Plains and Central and Southern Great Plains, um, and these migrations involve tens of thousands of people. Um, then booms in uh, you know town building and mining and railroads in, in major uh, urban centers across the West, like such as Denver and Salt Lake and uh, Los Angeles. Eventually, um, also start drawing many uh, African Americans from the South, kind of in this era after great after Greater Reconstruction, but before the Great Migration. Um, before the Great Migration, at which point you know. Millions of people will, will leave uh, the South to various places in, in the North and the West. But before this, migration is small, but it's actually very concentrated. Um, it's, it's, it's in the case of Montana, it's really concentrated. Um, there are only about seven or eight towns uh, that eventually kind of grow a sizable black population. And since many of these towns themselves are not very large, you know, the largest of which might be, you know, Butte at the time, which had 20 or 30,000 people by the early 20th century. um, That's still a fairly small and it's a very compact urban space. So any number of, 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 of African-Americans, you know, living in and working with more than 100 or 200 or 300 people is a fairly noticeable and actually, I think, a very important um, 
community to, to register. It's even though that seems like a very small number, the spaces in which they're living, the geographic realities of their everyday lives uh, makes their, their presence um, important. Um, and I think historians should, should take note of those. So they come to these uh, mostly urban, and I'll call urban, even though most people will not recognize them as urban, but the, the town's uh, centers in Montana, Missoula, Helena, Great Falls, Anaconda, uh, Butte, uh, Billings, Mile City, and then even farther to the east, um, Bozeman to for a certain uh, to a certain extent, and they both try to work in the various industries that are in these in these spaces: the railroad, uh, mining, smelting. Um, but mostly, they find the that opportunities for widespread. Um, Black participation in those industries is, is usually cut off from them, either through hiring practices of the companies that don't want to, to hire uh, African-Americans um, or by the community that don't want African-Americans to be hired into these positions or by uh, eventually labor unions, many of which in Montana have uh, racially um, exclusive membership that bars uh, black members. And this that's especially the case in the smelting and, and, and copper industries that become kind of the driving force of Montana's economy around the turn of the century. So instead of that, even though some African-Americans do find work in those industries at various times, uh, most, most uh, black Montanans in that early uh, wave after greater reconstruction uh, go to work in the, the service industries in the, in the various positions um, that build up communities around those, around those other, uh, you know, around mining and the railroad. Although many African-Americans do work for railroads, um, the ones that are, you know, settling within uh, cities predominantly are working in kind of lower wages, lower wage uh, jobs, such as porters and common laborers. Um, uh, but also as the 19th century turns to the 20th century, we do start seeing uh, a really significant number of um, African-Americans in Montana working into and, and establishing kind of professional jobs that start building a, a black working middle class. Um, there's also a black professional class, but it's not very large, but the black working middle class um, in which you have people who are, and they might be a waiter or work at a hotel, um, but they have various other means of income and they own their own home and they have this uh, really noticeable middle class aesthetic, especially of the late Victorian uh, era. And this uh, is what I start seeing as the kind of the, the center of, of many of these communities uh, that have grown up from the 19th century into the 20th century around Montana. Um, so it is economic in its driving and its drawing and, and tracking of African-Americans from other parts of the country, not just the South, uh, but largely. Um, and it's also a space where at least um, a number of them feel that it is, it is worth putting down roots and working towards, you know, this other, uh, this other goal of homeownership and, um, established uh, community ties and so on. I thought it was interesting. You talked about the black women's clubs and the organization of churches and the racial uplift. And you mm -hmm. talked about the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, sure. The, um, the, well, the black women's clubs are actually a really fascinating um, 
way to try and get into what daily life um, in terms of a community's daily life uh, might have looked like. Um, Black women's clubs, uh, obviously club women had been an important part of, of African-American life across the country uh, since the late 19th century and before in, in many cases. And in Montana, that was no exception. Uh, cities uh, all founded their own black women's clubs. Um, sometimes they were very small, you know, three, four, five women, uh, other places where there was a larger black community. Um, could had, you know, dozens of women uh, meeting on a regular basis, uh, either discussing, you know, literature or uh, working for various causes. Um, many of them that are a little bit later on um, are founded during uh, World War One and other kind of really uh, difficult times that that emerge uh, around kind of the depressed economy, especially in Montana, that takes place in the latter 1910s. Um, and those those groups of women uh, are formed as kind of support groups that go to, you know, bring meals to, to people who are out of work or to offer, you know, funds. And eventually throughout the 20th century, you know, much past the time frame of, that my book looks at, those women's clubs federate in 1921 and then grow into a fairly um, political, well, a very politically active organization, the, the Montana Federation of Colored Women's Clubs um, that uh, advocates for legislation and helps write bills and, you know, had letter writing campaigns and uh, raise money for candidates and so on. Um, and that's a really fascinating uh, chapter, which I think someone could write a wonderful, wonderful book on. And I know a lot of historians uh, locally uh, and public historians in Montana have, have done a ton of work with the, the women's clubs. They're always, and often in their origins, kind of going back to the, the, the time period that I write about, are tied to the churches in town and with that through other you know networks of support that emerge in Montana. And that really goes to the kind of the really prevalent and sometimes taken for granted fact that in in cities across the United States and in Montana, African Americans who arrive are not on the whole and by and large uh, available or able to access the other types of, of, of mutual aid and, and community support networks uh, that really support um, or really help people in those places have a security for the future. Um, in the broader white community, this is much larger, much more wealthy churches. It's also mutual aid societies, um, various clubs, uh, masons, and <laughs> Uh, these are all systems that are in place for the broader community to help hold people up in the event of the imminent, in many cases, almost expected busts and hard times that would happen with kind of volatile mining economies. Um, and by the time that African-Americans arrive kind of in much larger numbers by the 1890s through the 1910s, when the population peaks, um, we also see the corresponding African-American versions of these clubs and networks, uh, mutual aid groups and churches that are designed to do much of the same thing. And it is also, you know, it's in many ways because there is the, the, the desire for community and for, you know, congregation with people with similar experiences, but it's also because they, they need those networks of support. They need to foster those, those networks of kinship and family and community because they are as vulnerable in many cases, much more vulnerable to changing economic and environmental conditions uh, because of um, 
prevalent systems of, of systemic racism uh, that always kind of act against their interests. Um, so these these networks which we see, these are kind of the the, the nodes of, of black community life. Um, not only because they are, you know, wonderful spaces where African Americans, you know, came together and shared experiences, but because they were in many cases necessary within uh, a white settler society that just had no interest in offering uh, place within their own institutions um, for African Americans who were there. Now, you talked about the Negro problem. Even though the numbers were small, there were people who feared blacks coming into Montana. Right. So this is this is something that I was interested in pursuing uh, early on in my research and writing, where you read through white newspapers, uh, predominantly in Montana, and you see a close echoing of the rhetoric around, you know, what, what is known at the time uh, as the Negro problem. Um, but the way they talk about it, it is migration centered. And in in some ways, it kind of foreshadows, in Montana's press, it foreshadows the conversations which become incredibly intense, you know, in the 19, late 19-teens, 1920s, during the Great Migration's early years, which if you were to go to uh, you know, a newspaper in Chicago, the type of, of rhetoric um, that is that is really hysterical about the, pro- the prospect of, of African-Americans moving in mass into northern cities and taking jobs and building neighborhoods um, is either reprinted in Montana in the 1890s as the black population is growing in Montana's modest cities. Um, but at the same time, it also at we, we see instances of, you know, the, the white reporters writing their own versions of this of this same type of of anxious rhetoric around black migration. Sometimes they're talking about the anxious rhetoric in the nation at large. Um, Other times they seem to be uh, pointing directly towards more um, homegrown worries. And I think that comes largely from the fact that as the 1890s and early 1900s progresses, we have to remind ourselves that for any person living in these these really compact uh, geographic spaces, that black neighbors are conspicuous neighbors because they're so evidently racialized. And as black communities form, um, only a handful of of cities seem to pass either formal or informal housing discrimination uh, that keeps African-Americans living in one part of town. So small neighborhoods of a few black houses around a black grocery store or a black church will pop up. And I think that the, the anxiety that is rehearsed in the language of the Negro problem, as white newspapers put it, um, is really a testament to, or or it should draw our attention that this migration, though it has remained somewhat invisible to, you know, present day readers and historians, it was not invisible to the people living in Montana at the time. Uh, I think a lot of times when I give talks and and discuss the subject, there is a a quick moment that everyone who has not worked through these types of sources before has where they say, well, wait, when and where did they, did the African-American community come from? Like, when did they come to Montana? And that that question itself belies an ignorance of the forces and the the, the type of, of uh, migratory patterns and causes that brought so many African-Americans there. So it becomes invisible to us in the present. Um, 
and we remain, you know, ignorant of it. We don't know about its history. So we have to ask. Um, and I think that sometimes we impose our own uh, lack of knowledge onto historical actors in the past, which is just not the case. When when uh, white papers in Butte, Anaconda, and Great Falls are talking about the Negro problem, um, that is their way of dealing with something, uh, you know, a, a movement of, of people um, who are racialized to their, what they see as their, you know, their homes and neighborhoods. Um, and so I think we would do well to know that this is not uh, a banal uh, thing for, for, for white Montanans at the turn of the century. This is something that occupies their time and I think speaks to the anxiousness that is inherent in, in white settler society. Tell us about the story of James Belden and his murder. I think that helps us understand what's going on. Well, James Belden, um, he comes up very late in the book. I, I use uh, his, his story to try and think about the, the period of time that closes that closes my, my study um, in the late 1910s and early 1920s. Belden is living in uh, Crow Agency, kind of near Hardin, Montana, um, so uh, within the, the Native American uh, reservation. Um, and he is a, he's an African-American man. He's working, I believe, as a, a shoe repairsman uh, in town. And he had just moved to Crow Agency from Butte in 1923 and 1924, somewhere in there. Um, and it's during this moment that he is accused of when he's very early on there. So he hasn't made a lot of connections. He's accused of a, of a petty crime, uh, possibly theft or something like that. And um, the way the his story, he ends up being being killed by a mob of, of, of people, many of which included uh, uh, Native Americans, uh, members of the, the Crow uh, tribe who are, who are living there. And the way the story is picked up by the national press, it's picked up by the, the Chicago Defender, so a black newspaper, um, is it's kind of indicative of how um, African-Americans are continually kind of dealing with that same tension, maybe that Rose Gordon had expressed in telling the story about her own birth, uh, of where do you fit within a society vis-a-vis uh, -vis other colonized and similarly, similarly oppressed peoples um, the, the black press, the Chicago Defender uh, reporter is, is very critical of, of Native Americans in that instance who are involved in, in Belden's death and uh, uses it as a kind of, he rehearses then what is you know, very commonly understood as language of, of a settler colonist, you know, disparaging Native Americans as, as barbarous or savage um, and then, then critiquing their, their violent actions as, uh, you know, he used it sarcastically to, to suggest that they're fully American now, you know, his words, because they have participated in the lynching of this black man. Um, what is unknown apparently to the, um, the reporters in Chicago is that Belden's case is, ac or his, his accusations um, uh, accelerate into this, this violent confrontation, not necessarily through the actions, as far as we can tell, of indigenous people in Crow Agency, but through the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs agent, who was at that point one of the leaders in the Ku Klux Klan in Montana. Um, and it's the, you know, it's 200 pages into the books and the very first time the KKK is mentioned. And I did that kind of intentionally, mostly because it doesn't 
it isn't really uh, prevalent in Montana until the 1920s with its national resurgence. But it it goes to show that we can that whole chapter is about how histories that we have some kind of reference point for um, are often entwined with ones that we do not know. So the history of the KKK in Montana is often told as being directed towards Catholics, uh, communists, people on the left. Um, and it's often said that, you know, because there were so few African-Americans living in Montana in the early 1920s, that it had less to do with uh, white supremacy and as opposed to these other uh, factors of it. Um, but in the same case, James Belden is, is a black man who was lynched you know, through the actions started by a, a member of the KKK. Um, but at the same time, its intersection with the Native Americans who are taking place in it shows the way that the KKK itself in Montana by the, by the 1920s is, is operating in, in ways that you would expect uh, uh, white supremacists in a settler state, in a so recently dispossessed settler state to act. Their, their claims of nativity through their... Um, their clan meetings are always, you know, they're mentioned that they're taking place on Native American, you know, sacred spaces and special uh, rocks around, you know, Laurel or Billings, um, where they reference that the last time anyone used this space uh, had been indigenous people before them. And now the KKK is claiming their nativity to Montana through reenacting these rituals. Um, and that comes at the end of my book, because my, my argument is to suggest that the, the way we need to consider the systemic um, racism and the, the effects of, of racial exclusion in Montana needs to be always held up, it, it, when speaking of, of Black history, needs to be held up alongside the always related uh, questions of how we understand and think about uh, settler colonialism, which in scholarship is usually a, a binary between white and indigenous people, um, but my book is always trying to, to, to push to thinking towards a much more expansive understanding of how race, blackness, whiteness, uh, and indigeneity kind of function to, to form the, the, the way that, that uh, settler power operates in society. And the KKK, James Belden murder is, is at the end of the period of, that I discuss, but I think it's important to, I, I, I felt the need to include it because it, it really did highlight um, that the connectivity between these different threads in Montana's history had continued and were very potent um, and, you know, could lead to very explosive moments. Blacks and whites were married until 1909. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so one of the, the chapters in my book is specifically focused on the passage and then the effects that I try to pull out of Montana's 1909 ban on interracial marriage. Um, up until that point, there had not been any laws, you know, passed at the state level, um, uh, what were called uh, anti-miscegenation laws. Um, but the legislative session right before 1909 and 1907, so it's every other year in Montana, um, the, the same man who proposed the 1909 bill, Charles Muffley of, of Broadwater County, put forward a bill um, banning interracial marriage, uh, but he included in his bill the banning of 
marriages between uh, white people and, uh, and Native Americans. So this bill was actually roundly defeated, largely because of that particular statute. Uh, when he reintroduced the bill the next session, he removed uh, whites and natives and uh, left it as kind of a, a, a miscegenation bill that prohibited marriage between uh, African Americans and white people and white people and members of various uh, Asian uh, ethnicities and, and, and races that continue to grow actually over the years. Um, so in this moment, I think that we, I wanted to draw attention to the failure of the 1907 bill and the passage of the 1909 bill to talk about the ways that even though this, the ban on interracial marriage appears at on the surface to be a question of you know, this racial binary between white and black. Um, and then we would assume its effects would be only within that context, that it is in fact also part of, of, a, settler, um, of a settler discourse around whiteness, blackness, and indigeneity. The reason why the, the 1907 version of the bill is, is defeated is because marriage between white men and native women had remained to be one of the, the points of access that, that, that white settlers could still use to either enter into native kitchen networks uh, for access to hunting or trapping or to land use and land rights eventually down the road. But it also fit into this um, deeply insidious version of, of whiteness and blood um, that pervaded uh, racial ideologies at the time. And the idea was that uh, indigeneity and, and, and native, uh, you know, it's where the, the basis of blood quantum comes from is an ever decreasing uh, entity. And then indigeneity will disappear um, when intermarried with, with white settlers. Uh, on the opposite side of that spectrum is, is blackness in which any, you know, the one drop rules essentially makes it so any amount of, of, of African-American uh, heritage and ancestry makes one black. So blackness becomes this ever expanding category, which had you know ties going all the way back to chattel slavery and the growing of, of, of labor forces. But blackness becomes ever expanding and therefore a threat. So you legislate against the expansion of, of blackness and indigeneity can be dissolved, diluted and, and annihilated through the same process because it's ever decreasing and contracting. Um, and the, the 1909 miscegenation bill nodded in both directions to this, to this white settler ideology. And in this way, then, I wanted to trace the effects of the bill, always keeping in mind that it had taken place and had formed within these conversations um, that were more than just ideas of racial purity, but about home and place and belonging and the things that mattered to settlers, you know, the place-basedness of, of, of settler ideology that, you know, prized the land as the preeminent form and manifestation of, of political power, um, that somehow that was also a, a category that we needed to think about. And the ways that I went about it was first to address all the, the interracial marriages that we know about in Montana, and there were many, um, not as many as, uh, you know, it, it wasn't thousands of, of people over the years, but, you know, dozens and dozens of, of couples across the state at the passage of the bill are, are parts of interracial marriages. Um, and by 1930, that number had declined. And we see that there were uh, 
quite a few couples that leave Montana between 1910, when we have a good census, right when the bill is about to go in effect, and 1920 and 1930, uh, they leave over those next two decades, you know, about half of the couples who had been present in Montana uh, leave. But not entirely. Uh, many couples still remain. Many couples still um, uh, remain married, despite it being illegal. And this kind of goes to the the um, the scholar Peggy Pasco, who is also a Montanan. Um, her incredible, amazing book, What Comes Naturally, was one of these first big kind of monumental texts for me that pointed to where power existed in, in the making of race in America. And it really had to do with, you know, local clerks and officials. Um, a marriage was legal until it was challenged in the court. Uh, and if it was challenged in the court and determined that uh, one partner was white and one partner is black, then the court can nullify that marriage. It was in some ways pre-nullified, but it was not acted upon and you remained married until that challenge was made. So there were couples who remained married either because they're community members um, or life circumstances, either through banks or other institutions that might've had a, had an interest in whether or not uh, their marriage remained or was dissolved um, because they didn't do anything. They didn't bring it to court. Those people remained married. Um, and then others seem to have you know, suffered the effects of this bill immediately and, and had to separate and um, or leave. Um, and there are various uh, different stories in the book, which I, I get into discussing how that played out. But I also wanted to think about the, the way that those events would have impacted a community in Montana that was, you know, concentrated in these cities um, and at the time in 1910, had a large proportion of young people. Um, there were families here. This was not, I mean, the percentage of men to women was still a little lopsided, but it had almost evened out over the last preceding 20 years leading up to this point. Um, but at the same time, you if you wanted to continually to grow the, the Black population kind of in step with the rest of the state, uh, it was going to, at that point, either take uh, migration from other places, which... I think people were uh, hoping for a lot of the newspapers were advocated for, um, but it also could have involved um, marrying outside of your community. And after 1910, or 1910, when that no longer becomes an option, um, we start. I, I tried to pay attention to the number of, of, of African American single uh, people, you know, between 15 and 40, kind of the to the young marriageable ages. Um, and that's a percentage, that, that, that's a group of people, the demographic group that just plummets in, in, in numbers between 1910 and 1920, 1930, such that like in Helena, for example, um, that population, the single people between 15 and 40, uh, it decreases almost 80% in the next decade, which suggests both that young people are leaving to find work out elsewhere. Um, but I also didn't want to suggest that they, we could only think about uh, you know, African-Americans in Montana in terms of their labor, that they may have also you know, considered their, their prospects for future in this space and their personal lives um, and something like a, a law that kind of really reduced uh, who they could marry in the future, um, I think certainly has to play into it. And I end that chapter, I think, with uh, it's it's a little bit of an anomaly that takes place in Bozeman uh, around the same time. Um, 
but there's a young nine-year-old boy who, when he is, he's growing up and his, his mother is sick and his dad is working uh, in the next town over in Livingston as a hotel cook. And they quickly decide in the decades after the passage of that bill to leave. Um, and he wouldn't think that the, the, the passage of a bill banning interracial marriage would matter for a nine-year-old, except for the fact that if you zoom out from that moment and you look at his community, there is not within 50, 60, 100 miles of him, not a single person that he could legally marry uh, had his parents decided to stay in Bozeman. And they eventually leave and, and, and go to, to Washington, the only state in the, in the region uh, at that time that had not passed bans on, on interracial marriage. Um, so you zoom out from this, this nine-year-old boy and you realize that this, this bill, whether or not he had thought about it or not, or whether or not his parents had thought about it that deeply, it would have had an impact on him. He would have come to an age in which the, the reality of that bill would have been present and it would have been a, a part of his of his everyday life. He would have known that it had had changed his future, even if we don't uh, know how he would have, you know, what the decisions he would have made at that point, it still impacted him. Um, so I thought about it in, in that sense. And I, I thought that was a useful chapter to step away from, uh, a book that otherwise has always, you know, it, it's dealing a lot with, you know, where people are living and working and try to, to tap into what I could say about kind of the more personal or affective side of these experiences to the extent that I could. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Yeah, I am actually down in Pueblo, Colorado at the moment, um, doing research for my dissertation. Um, it is uh, a continuation of my, my work in Black history, but I have uh, tried to um, kind of leave geographically Montana for the moment, and I'm looking at uh, the Rocky Mountain uh, West. Specifically, I'm interested in those uh, the Black communities in the same time period, 1870s through the 1920s, um, that become... Uh, it kind of growth in the middle of and become embedded in in somewhat you know medium sized white communities, but have within themselves this interesting character um, that kind of espouses hope for a future and a sense of self and community. And this is all taking place before the population you know booms and the demographic upheavals of the Great Migration, which you know populations of cities like Denver or Los Angeles or Spokane really explode and and then then Black history and Black community history in these places looks pretty different. I'm trying to uh, look specifically at that time frame, and I've chosen a handful of cities and narrowed it down from about a dozen or so to three um, really important places that I, I am interested in, in discovering and uh, kind of working through different elements of Black community building and what I'm kind of calling new Black towns, um, kind of as trying to think through the framework of the scholarship on the Black towns of the Great Plains, these all Black communities um, and their visions for the future, and then seeing how those types of, of worldviews through the 1870s and 1880s uh, were quickly transplanted into the new white communities, but then became in themselves the, the black communities that grew up in the midst of them, uh, kind of also uh, articulated their own sense of cohesion and hope for a future. Um, so I'm working through, uh, yeah, uh, Pueblo, Colorado, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Pocatello, Idaho are my three that I have chosen. And I'm very excited about, about that project. I'm about halfway done with it, I think. Um, so in the next 
year or so, it will probably be fully drafted. And then I will be on to hoping to find, you know, work in, in academia and, you know, a job where I can continue uh, teaching history of race in the American West, comparative colonialism somewhere. Um, yeah, so that's my my future plans. Uh, still very, you know, much in the middle of, of, of my grad school, so. Thank you so much for this book and all of the great contributions you've made. And I've enjoyed the book. And again, the book is Black Montana, Settler Colonialism and the Erosion of Racial Frontier, 1877, 1930. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you.